Come on. They're right there. Let's go. Move, 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 move. This episode of Choices Not Chances is sponsored by Louisiana Gun Shop, located in Broussard, Louisiana, just south of Lafayette. For more information, stay tuned at the end of this episode. Welcome to Choices Not Chances with Ryan and Matt, episode one. 99% of the time, it's the choices we make, not the chances shit. Life comes down to making good choices when seeking good results. This is a excerpt out of a safety brief that um, was given to us countless times by the one and only Gordon Emanuel when we were under his command as a, well, I guess a second and a first lieutenant. Huh? Both, yeah. Both, yeah. He was first lieutenant when I got there. Uh, and, and still to this day, best uh, best commander, um, in, in my opinion, that I've ever had. And, and I'm sure you could echo that. Um it was great. And so that's what we wanted to name the podcast, uh, Choices Not Chances, because it really boils down to that. If you want good things to happen, if you want to live a positive life, if you want to seek self-improvement, you want to rid yourself of the demons, you got to add responsibility and you got to get, and you have to make good choices. Make good choices, you're going to get good results. So without further ado, I guess we're going to get into this. It's going to be a little bit of a um, a more administrative podcast uh, at the end is we're going to make some announcements for the actual podcast and release you guys to our social media pages and things of that nature. But um, first and foremost, we're going to talk about uh, Lions of Marja, which was um, a book that I uh, I wrote and I just published, and it's going to be about um, it's going to be about uh, you know Marja Afghanistan when Matt and I were in three six. Um, Matt and I were in three six together, and we made a push into Afghanistan during an initial va- invasion of uh, Operation Mashtarak, and and uh, it was a wild ride. And so I tried to document it as accurately as I could throughout the book. And we've received so many positive results so far since the launch of the book. Um, you know, you could check it out for yourself on Amazon, and there, you know, check out the reviews, check out what people are saying, and uh, and if you if you like this podcast, if you like what we get into in the first couple of episodes reviewing the book, then um, then you're then you're gonna love the book. I mean, straight out. And you're um, gonna love the podcast. Uh, and you're gonna love the podcast. Podcast is it isn't so, it isn't only gonna be about the book for sure. No, no, no. And uh, and we're gonna get into the book, but uh, this episode we wanted to gear more towards telling you guys like the reasons why we wanted to podcast and. Um, and just have the conversation about what our intent is and what our intent has started as and, you know, and, and hopefully just, just kind of convey, you know, our thoughts. We haven't talked about this yet. So Matt, I'm sure you got your own personal reasons for uh, wanting to, you know, jump into this venture, you know, with me and you know, I'd, I'd like to get into that right now. So um, take it as far back as you need to take it um, and, and, and let us know why do you, Why'd you want to do this? Well, the reason I wanted to kind of start this podcast, one, is a good excuse to spend a little more time with you, being you, you live in North Carolina, I live in Louisiana, yep, but yep, yep. it uh, that's definitely a big thing. And uh, also, I'm a huge fan of the Jocko podcast. Oh, definitely. 
and cleared hop. And for as many stories of they, as they have told, there's a lot more out there that haven't been told because they just don't have the time to do it. So if we get another uh, platform out there for them, for uh, those stories to be told, uh, I think that'll be good. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm, we both, uh, myself and Matt as well, uh, huge Jocko fans, uh, huge podcast fans in general. I mean, I podcast Jordan Peterson. I podcast uh, Jocko Willinks, Joe Rogan, um, Eric Weinstein, Brett Weinstein. Um, and it's not all <clears> war. I, you know, I've come to know that, you know, I'm, I'm one week away from finishing my bachelor's degree. And I think that over the, over the same period of time, I've probably learned an equal to or uh, um, or more amount of knowledge that I've learned and retained from podcasts than I did going to university. So um, I think there's a lot to be said in that. And, uh, and I agree with you, you know, reaching out, getting those stories told, bridging that uh, civilian military divide. Um, I was just on a conference call with uh, a, a wounded warrior umpire association um, headed up by um, former Major Greg Wilson from from the United States Marine Corps, an organization that I got with back in the day for therapy and and camaraderie and stuff in transition, and um, was telling them the same thing. I mean, I mean that's what it boils down to. So, um, so what else? Like, so you wanted to well, you want to get the stories told. And, one of them's a uh, selfish reason. Okay, I want to be the Jocko in the room. You want to be the Jocko in the room. <laughs> I think everybody wants. I to want be to the be Jocko the, in the room. Well, when I listen to those podcasts, I have my own questions. And I want to, I want them answered. Right. So I want to be the one to. So if you have a question, and you want to have a question, you want to ask it. Ask exactly. All right. So, all right. There's only one way to do that. You got to have your own show. You got to have your own show. I hear you. Or, well, you know what I'm saying. What's your own show? It's our own show. Our own show. Yeah, absolutely. And and what, going, about, what about you? Why are you? Uh, I I have multiple reasons. Uh, some of which I just talked about. A big one is. Bridging the military-civilian divide. I, I don't. I don't think there's a better way, at least that I know, to um, bridge that, other than to give the raw experiences of the warfighter and hope in hopes of, um, you know, a lot of those, um, a lot of those divides that we have. Um, a good thing. A good thing that uh, one of the reviews that I got on the book, and uh, it's the same reason that I'm doing this. I want people to know what 18 to 22 year old kids go out there and do for them. And I think they take it for granted in our country too often. And, you know, we've reached a point in our society where, where we're so free that we don't even understand what people do for that freedom and what they go through and what their families go through and what their friends go through. And, uh, you know, when you have 22 veterans a day uh, killing themselves, be it through drug overdose you know, actual suicide, you know, attempts on their life, things of this nature, uh, it's, it's too much. And, uh, and that's the big reason I want to bridge the divide. I want to pass as much knowledge as I can. And, you know, arguably, not arguably, we've seen some intense combat for a long duration period, you know, long duration. And, and that has effects on people. And guess what it's supposed to, it's not that it's supposed to affect you negatively, but you're doing something unnatural that you've never done before. It's going to have adverse effects on your psyche and you know um we learn more and more within the, in the medical community and things of that nature about the brain and traumatic brain injury and things of this nature but you know it, it really boils down to in my opinion a support system 
somewhere where you can go, where you can trust. And whether that's a friend, whether that's a counselor, whether that's, you know, a perfect stranger on a, on a crisis line, but having that buffer pad, let's say of somebody, um, you know, of somebody talking to you, even if it's just to hear you vent and let you, you know, let you kind of get those demons out. And, and then once you get them out, you know, hopefully, and I would say, you know, eight out of 10 times when, when I'm engaging veterans, you know, at, at this point that are on the, on the brink, it's like eight times out of 10, if they don't have some sort of alcohol or drugs in their system, we can come to a consensus that things were better than when the conversation started. And, um, and then, and that's another big push. I mean, we gotta, we gotta talk about what we're doing to ourselves. Right. You know, we gotta talk about the abuse. We gotta talk about how that's not cool. That's not something we preach. Um, does it serve a purpose to the individual? Yeah. Like I get it. Um, uh, to an extent, I mean, I'm not saying it doesn't have adverse you know, effects on certain portions of your life, but you know, I, I drink a lot coming home and, uh, to an abusive level and, and a lot of guys do and it's like i just want to sleep i just want to feel normal i don't want this anxiety i can't get it to go away you know they, those kinds of things and they'll drive a person you know to to, to do uh irrational things and to do things that they, they they weren't prone to doing before and um and it's time to remove the negative stigma from that fellas like it's uh we know enough now that to know that the negative stigma shouldn't be attached to PTSD. If you want to call it a disorder, I really don't. You've seen some unnatural things and, and that's kind of how it goes. And so because of all of that, this is my attempt or our attempt, I guess you would say, sorry, Goose, um, to, you know, get that knowledge out there. And, um, you know, we talk about this before we launch this thing and, you know, got set up and so much time and effort has been put into it. Um, so many people to thank for it and we'll get to that, but we talked about it before. If we could turn this passion project into, into something, a conduit for, for in, information and knowledge that pertains to the veteran that maybe could help one person. If we have one person, then it's worth it. And if we help a bunch of people, that's worth it too. I mean, that's, that's, tenfold right you know right. every every person can help in some way so or if we can help a civilian <clears throat> who never served with the story of a veteran absolutely absolutely and and, and that going back to the bridge civilian the gap. yeah bridge the gap bridge the gap let people know that they're walking amongst giants and they don't even know it. right um yeah so that's a that's a big that's a big big point to me for sure and um and we mean to bring light light to it. I mean, um, throughout our time there, we had some ups and downs throughout our time. And, you know, <clears throat> I was never the person, I don't think, that even believed in PTSD or even believed that I would be susceptible to something like that. Like, I loved my job. I loved leading Marines. I loved combat. I mean, there are sides of combat you don't love. But, you know, when it came to doing my job, you know, locate close with and destroy the destroying the enemy yeah, yeah. i like that part and um About the yeah. only thing i didn't like was the mud the mud was bad we'll get into the mud we will definitely we talk were about in the mud, mud and we'll get back to the mud <laughs> um but yeah and so and, and another thing that's been brought up is the family members and you said civilians but i mean a lot of times the family members can be civilians or are civilians 
and you got these mothers, you got these fathers, brothers, and sisters that are back at home, and they do not understand why their person came back this way. They do not understand, and they're afraid to ask the question, did you kill somebody? They're afraid to ask the question, you know, what was it like? What did it feel like in these things? And, you know, on that note, I think that it's important to bring up that, you know, traditional stories need to be told, and we need to have that that um, that want, you know, from from our younger you know, American population to want to come in and want to serve. And um, so I understand the Hollywood side of uh, romanticizing uh, the violence that comes in war. Um, but that's bullshit. And um, it's not romantic. And it's not fun a lot of times. And when you're in the heat of it, um, you know, it, it's real. It gets real, real quick. Um so, I don't know. What's your thoughts on that? About uh, the romanticism of... Mm. Well, I don't think it's romantic. There are fun points. Mm. Until the bodies start to drop on your side. Yeah, yeah. And then, like you say, it becomes very real. And then the fun's over after that. Now, when you're fist pumping your buddy in the middle of a firefight and laughing, I think that's a natural response of the body. Yeah, to deal with a, an over stressful situation. Yeah, I mean, you got you got a lot to get out, and, and, <laughs> and, and you know, you know, Marines are always good for that, finding humor in just about anything, and uh, not just Marines, cops and firefighters. Uh, let's say high you know, adrenaline people, yeah, maybe. Uh, high stress jobs. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, <laughs> we talk about that in the book. We talk about you know the different ways, the different icebreakers, the different. Uh, Tactics, maybe, if you want to call it, the different psyches that people take, you know, through the course of a deployment or through um, you know, sometimes segments of a deployment can be, you know, much scarier than the other ones. I remember um, a point that I don't think I talk about in the book where we got our warning order from LT. We went back to the, to the uh, GP-10 on Dwyer and, um, and then we were asked to, or not asked, we were issued body bags for our guys to carry. Right. Yeah, and, um, you know, that wasn't my first time carrying a body bag, but for a lot of guys in second, they hadn't seen a body bag, let alone put one in their kit. They might not have had one in the first unit. I don't remember. But, yeah, that's definitely a wake-up call that you, you don't bring them if you don't think you might not need them. Yeah, things got real when the black zippers come out. And, um, yeah, I, I just remember looking at a lot of the guys' faces and you had – you know, you had the guys that, that laughed about it, like, ah, we're never going to need these. This is never going to be us. And, you know, whether they believe that or not, it was what they... Well, that's how they dealt with it. That's how they put it out there to the universe. Like, Some people laugh when they're nervous. Other people get to get quiet when they're nervous. Oh, yeah. We had guys get quiet. We had guys get emotional. Um, and then, you know, ultimately, at the end of the day, once the feelings started coming out, somebody went over to the iHome and hooked up Taylor Swift. And blared it on 10, and then, you know, the next thing you know, you got a GP tent full of uh, hard chargers, know, hard chargers, <laughs> you know, stripping to Taylor Swift, uh, Tim McGraw song, and singing almost every word, which is a, a weird experience. But, hey, you, everybody had a smile on their face after that, so I guess it served its purpose. Team building. Team building. <laughs> it's a little team building. No big deal. Um, do hard things. Yeah, do hard things. So, yeah, I mean, uh, how, whichever way you want to look at it, the podcast is 
the intent of the podcast is to get information and stories out there for two reasons. One, on a therapeutic side, um, uh, for veterans, um, a place to go to hear uh, stories of like-minded individuals. And then on the, on the civilian side, to let these families and these mothers and these fathers and, you know, maybe not even any relation to military whatsoever. And they have absolutely no clue. And, um, and, you know, tell them what it's about. Tell them what, like I said, 18 to 22 year old kids are going out there and doing for them. And, uh, and maybe, maybe if we're lucky, um, you know, a little bit of empathy starts to show through and a little bit, um, at least a little bit of, um, courtesy or, uh, it's not even recognition. It's not like a thank you for my service kind of thing. It's just like, understand who I am a little bit and understand, you know, why I'm amped, you know? And for a lot of guys, a lot of guys don't struggle with that. And like, even, even for myself, I've gotten to a point where I can get out of town and I can, and I don't have these, you know, these anxiety attacks like I used to have them. But for the guys that do have them, like, this is a place. Come. Soak up the knowledge. You know, learn. Um, and and it, what I've seen in a lot of my beginning of my, I, I guess you would say, treatment or my counseling and things like that when we first came home, um, a lot of guys just didn't want to admit that they had an issue. Yeah. A lot of guys uh, seen the negative stigma that it brought to them to their commands. Um a lot of guys didn't want to admit to their friends that they were having problems. And I mean, still to this day, we have guys that we were in country with, you know, and they don't want their leadership from that time. Now, 10 years later to know how they're doing, if it's not good. Right. And, you know, because it carries like in for a long time. Sure. Sure. And you feel shameful. Like, you know, am I the only one feeling like this way? If, I, if I'm the only one, then this is me. This isn't everybody else kind of thing. And um, yeah. And a lot of guys are afraid to, you know, get that out there and just say, this, this is my issue. This is, you know, this is affecting me. And then I'd say another side of it is, um, especially in the Marine Corps and in the grunts, you're coming from a place, uh, of, of straight alpha male and, and the first sign of any kind of beta weakness, weakness. I it's mean, gonna it, be I mean, exploited. it's dogs, it's dogs on raw meat and they're going to get you. And, uh, and that's just the life we live. Right. And, well, you wouldn't be good at what you do if you didn't have that mentality. One hundred, I yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, but at the same time, loving your brother, oh you man. need to be able to sit down and put all that aside and just talk it out. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and another, and we're thing, gonna get back. In, we're gonna get deeper, way deeper into that. So. Oh yeah, in the book, we're gonna do a good review of the book, guys. And then, and then, all of you that want more on it, go purchase it. I promise you, it's gonna. It's going to put out for you. You're going to you're going to enjoy what you get. All right, Matt. With all the podcast pleasantries out of the way, we're gonna we're gonna delve into the book a little bit. But first, before we start the book, um, I think it's important to just go ahead and talk about like why you even served. Was it a calling? Was it a an event? Was it um, you know family business? What was it that got you initially wanting? To serve. Well, uh, as you know, and I'll let everybody else in the listenership know, it is kind of the family business. Uh, I forget the count of how many people in my family have served in either the military or mostly the Marine Corps. But um, I think from a young age, I knew I was going to serve. 
the Marine Corps, in the Marine Corps. Oh. Mm. Of uh, how many family members do you have? I, I lost count. So it's a lot. It's a lot. <laughs> Got a regular Lieutenant Dance in here. At one point, there were the four older boys' grandchildren on my father's side. We were all in Helmand Province at the same time. At the same time. All yeah. infantry Marines. Getting after it. In different battalions. Two of which were in the six Marines, me and, an, and another cousin. You motivates me. <laughs> and um, like, so what about uh, older generations? So you said family um, business. Is this like dads? My I father, um, two uncles, uh, a great uncle in World War II, uh, Guadalcanal, Pelu. Um, my great grandfather in World War One was in the army. Okay. Um, medic, as, from what I've been told. Um, one of my aunts, I have another female cousin and, uh, another cousin on my dad's side and another cousin on my, uh, mom's side. So pretty much your whole family. Well, we could, we're, we're reaching platoon strength. You guys, for could, sure. you guys could field a solid platoon. Yes. Uh, Maybe squad. Squad reinforced. Squad reinforced. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Okay, um, so not only that, uh, of course, September 11th, I was in eighth grade history class when the tower mm. first tower came down. Um, they wouldn't let us watch it. Obviously, we were—I guess—we were too young at the time. What state did you grow up in? <laughs> we had to bring that up. <laughs> why they didn't watch it? I don't know. I was in Ohio. Was in Massachusetts. You already know this. <laughs> they wheeled in. They wheeled in TVs we didn't even have access to to let us watch it. Um, that that strikes a chord in a in a patriotic man's heart. Absolutely. Or a boy's heart, for that matter. Absolutely. Um, and just I wanted revenge for sure. Yeah, um, I get. I can relate to that. As I got older, of course. 2001 and I joined in 2006 or I went to boot camp in 2006 um it changed a little bit and the real reason that I found and I've thought about it many times since then and up to this day and it really gets down to because you were going to be there because the guys were going to be there and not necessarily mm. you mm. but because someone was going to be there somebody had to do that job. I wanted to be there with them mm. And that's uh, that's definitely something that I hold dear to my heart. That you need to be there with with your guys, and you don't even know who they are when you sign the paper, but you know you're going to be there with them. You know you're going to have some buddies. That's right. right. Yep. Yeah. The man to your right and to your left. It's a, it's so cliche. It's, it it almost makes me feel like. <laughs> hey, uh, but I like, mean, like I, LT says, if it's cliche, it's because it's true. Yeah, it didn't get cliche by itself from, from people not using it, right? So, That's right. It was definitely that. Well, I want to hear about why you joined. I mean, you, you hit a lot of it right there. Um, you know, growing up, I think my earliest remember or my earliest memory of, um, I think my earliest memory overall was somewhere around middle school. It was like the first time we had a, um, like a job fair, right? Where they come and, you know, they wear their uniform and they tell you all about, you know, what they do. And, you know, it was through the school and there was an army sniper there doped out in a ghillie suit 
And, you know, I don't know how old I am, 14, not even that, right? 13 years old. And, uh, and I see this dude, you know, he's got, he's got face paint stripes on. He looked like Rambo. He's got like a whole ghillie suit on, you know, he's, he, he didn't have a weapon. Uh, uh, even then the school policy was, yeah, you can, uh, you're not bringing the M40 in for, for the children to be play with that <laughs> career day. Definitely not on ammo for sure. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah. And that, and that's my earliest memory. And it was like, I grew up in a family, um, with four boys, no girls, we, you know, army, cops and robbers, sports, you know, competition. And then, you know, you have the end competition or the, the end fighting, as you call it, or the brotherly love that you come up with and you're getting tough and you just, you know, I had a very, um, I would say a very uh, strict, I wouldn't even say very. I'd say I had a strict rearing, and my father was always very um, appreciative. He he didn't have anybody. He he didn't serve, you know. His dad didn't serve, but his grandfather, my great grandfather, served in the Second World War as an army medic, and um, so he always had that appreciation. And, and you know, he had heard stories from my great grandfather when he was growing up and things of that nature. And so there was always that patriotic pride that you know you will take your hat off you will put your hand on the heart on your heart and say the pledge of allegiance um you will respect that and he always had that even though you know even to this day i don't i'm glad i mean it shaped my life it shaped me as a man i don't know where all that came from right um but it came anyway so i had that memory in eighth grade and then like you said i think i was a sophomore in high school Years old. I think I was a sophomore in high school, and um, and I just remember we're sitting in. I was in sociology, oddly enough, and I remember uh, Mr. Miller, one of my one of my favorite, long time. I tell everybody, you know, as far as high school goes, all time, and definitely in the top top two to three, you know, including my my other degree. So, um, great guy, and you know, I could, you you could tell just like just like what you said when. You know, they come in the room. They didn't want you guys to see it or whatever. Like, well, they wheeled a table, like a uh, a cart TV. You know, the old cart TVs they yeah. had in the schools. Oh, yeah. We didn't have, you know, t- TVs hanging in the rooms. And so they wheeled this cart TV in just in time for, you know, us to see basically Tower 2 get hit. Tower 1's already smoldering. You know, New York City's crazy. I mean, it was so crazy live. Like, and you can probably look back on it on YouTube and see some stuff. But <coughs> when you're looking at this thing live, it's like um, the news anchors were freaking out, you know, like cussing, you know, holy fucking shit, there's another one. And boom, it would slam into the building. And I just remember sitting there in that desk thinking, <laughs> like, this is the United States of a fucking America. What is going on? Why is this happening? You know, and somebody, I don't know why it's happening, but somebody has to atone for what somebody's got what took place today, right? Somebody has to make sure that that never happens again. Um, and I remember that being, you know, boiling my blood and being just that. Um, I mean, the only thing I can, you know, really put into words is a calling. As soon as that happened, it was it. That was a wrap for me. My, you know, whatever my future had been cemented and, you know, and I was going to do something about it. And, um, you know, so then that, that was it for me. So then my senior year, you know, depth in, 
Went with the dress blues because they look the best. Panty droppers. There it is. And um, call them high season. You know, outside of going to the Marine Corps, the only other option is to go to be a Navy SEAL. I mean, if you're going to go harder. Really? And, uh, and man, I just couldn't justify the thought in my mind of being an open contract if something happened, if I got injured, something of that nature. Yeah. And it was pretty easy to get into the 03 field at the time. Um, yeah. There wasn't many people coming in going, hey, I want to go 03 and I want to ship this date in September right after I get home from elk hunting. Can you make that happen? He was like, yep. You know, no problem. No factor. <laughs> Jocko adage. Yeah, yeah. He was like, yep, I got you. Um, and so I graduated. I spent the summer hanging out with my buddies, you know, you know, probably raising hell, knowing that I, you know, I wasn't going to see these people again for a while or maybe ever. Who knows? And, um, and then in September, like September, gosh, I don't remember the date, you know, 15th you know, 12, something like that. I left with my dad and went out to, um, and my dad and my older brother and went out to Idaho and to bow hunt some elk. Um, and then following that trip, I got home and, uh, shipped to Paris Island to put my boots on the, and my foots on the yellow footprints. And, um, and that was it. Now I'm in, right. And, and, hundred miles an hour and you know we could go into the boot camp stories of well, we're gonna save that for later yeah right? of uh of the ones that everybody likes to hear anyway of boot camp and everybody wants to hear them and then they laugh like ah, i don't know what y'all are thinking mm-hmm. i don't know i don't know why you guys laugh about this and so or other marines hear them and like yeah it happened every day right right so there i was doing something that everybody else already did <laughs> right <laughs> right yeah and trying to make the best of it right you know um, yeah, it was a wrap. You know, I was a Marine. That's it. I went to boot camp. I, I mean, I loved everything. I loved everything. Um, you know, and then I started my, <laughs> you got a good recruiter story for you. And he was gone when I came home, but somehow I ended up with a, um, security forces contract. So I signed on a five-year contract and he promised me the world, all the weapons training you can get. You're going to the grunts anyway, and you're just going to go with more training. Instead, it was a two-year team of the Marine Corps. Baby. Yeah, 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 right. And so, <laughs> yeah, um, they used to call it the fake-ass SEAL team when I got there. Still it's, should be called that. Yeah, because it's not the same thing. I can promise you that. Um, but you know, I we don't I, swim so well. Yeah. We're supposed to. I sink like a rock. Yeah, well, you're supposed to be amphibious, Marine. Again, the mud. We'll get to the mud. Um, we'll get to the mud. Yeah, so now I'm in. I I go to fast, you know. I, I do a you do a, I do a Cuba deployment. I get mo get mo Guantanamo Bay Cuba fence line deployment. I did uh, a couple other things with fast, um, and then we went on like our our I guess our culminating deployment was to be a quick reaction force out of Southeast Asia as a fleet anti terrorism security team. Fast uh, element. Oh, that one right out of the spectrum, didn't right, you? Right out, of, right out of the ether. <laughs> And, uh, and yeah, and so, um, it was, it was impactful because I had a great command leadership there. Um, Oh, threes by luck because, you know, other, other MOSs can get in at the time could get in as like a B billet. And, um, so you weren't guaranteed to have, you know, like solid leadership. We had solid leadership. Um, actually I had solid leadership in my fast platoon too. Yeah. So like a lot of great training, advanced urban combat school, Hearst. And so when I came to the fleet, after our bid 
in Bahrain. In Bahrain, we got activated to do a non-combatant evacuation out of um, out of Beirut, Lebanon, uh, which was an experience, you know, non-combat related experience. And uh, and we were helping people, which was great because we were helping American citizens and their families, you know, get out of a war-torn area. Um, Hezbollah and uh, and Israel were kind of going at it again at that time. That was in like around 2006 time frame, 2005 time frame. Not every two or three years they get it on. <clears throat> it seems like every two or three days right now, Gaza's, right. Gaza's uh, on fire. So, and so I, I did my bid. I came home and uh, and then I left out. I went to 3-2, 3rd uh, Battalion, 2nd Marines, and picked up a squad, named a company. Did a did a pump to Alkaim region. I was in Karabla and Sadan and Rawa, um, and worked the streets there. And you know, regular line, squad, um, which was good for me in, in the long run, pertaining to like you know coming back to the book, the Marja deployment being much much different than any other deployment. I did much more kinetic, and um, so I think it was good as like a junior <clears throat> squad leader, as a corporal, to get out there with the squad for the first time, oh, yeah. and and be able to develop my patrolling, you know, tactics in an actual, you know, real life situation. And, um, I think, I think that later on, you know, that paid off and, you know, paid off in a big way for me. Um, once we got downrange in a different situation. So, uh, you, you know, and, and ultimately, so I did a pump with, uh, the third battalion, second Marines, Lima company as a squad leader. And then following that, they were slated to go on a Mew, um, and I didn't want to do that. Um, I just came out of Iraq. I didn't want to go on a mule. I didn't want to go get on a boat and float around. It just wasn't my idea of fun. It's it, not. And and if I could have got out of it, I would have. And sure enough, there was a uh, there was a spot on the all marine boxing team at the 172 pound weight class. And so I went and tried out. I won my fight. And so I chopped over TAD over to um, temporary uh, assignment duty. duty over to the boxing team, all marine boxing team. And then I didn't put camis on for like nine months. I boxed. I fought. We fought up and down the East Coast. I had a great time. And um, five, and, and, five and one. Five and one. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, it's been a while. I got bang, banged up on one of them pretty good. Um, but ultimately, had a great time. Met some great people. Got to see a different side of the Marine Corps than the than the you know fleet fleet Marine Corps. Yeah. That, you know, that line line company. And uh, it was a good experience. And, um, you know, at the end of the tenure there, 3-2 called up, said, hey, it's time to come home because they ultimately had control of that. And they needed they needed somebody to come back in and, um, and run like the remain behind element that didn't go on the mute. So now they're gone. I get back. I get over to 3-2. And I'm in this remain behind element, which is like where, where you go to lose your soul. I know. Yeah. And, um, so like the one thing is all your buddies are deployed. And then the other thing is you're with a bunch of like admin seps and legal holds and guys that really just don't care about their careers. And so you got to fight that, uh, and try and contain it mm-hmm. and, and contain like not blowing up on them daily for just being who they are and, yeah. and what they are. And so you lose your soul a little bit. It just, it just sucks right and out of your also body. Dealing with the, the appointments and making sure they make the appointments and, Oh man. I mean, for the med seps, that's the big deal, you know, mm-hmm. and then dealing with their doctors and all that. Too, oh yeah. You know? Oh yeah. And then, I mean, half the time, if you have admin seps that are in your RV and haven't made it to regiment yet, you're dealing with guys that have either popped on, uh, you know, on a, on a, on a ear analysis or, um, 
you know, a host of other things that you can be charged with. So, right. uh, and you're dealing with them. And a lot of times that's not fun. And it's, um, it can take away from you, you know, opposed to you being around a bunch of war fighters all day. You're around a bunch of people that, that, that don't want to, couldn't, couldn't want to be further away from any of that. Right. And so, um, yeah. And so I was in RBE and it was time to, you know, slap the table again. My, my contract ran up, my initial five-year contract ran, ran up and conveniently the Marine Corps was under incentive for operational forces for guaranteed two years. And so I slapped the table on that. I, I re, re-upped and, um, was originally slated to stay in 3-2 at the regimental level and be on Colonel Kennedy's uh, PSD when he went back, when he went back into country. And um, so I was stoked. I'm like, cool, I already have report here under the command, like no big deal. This is going to be awesome. And then like a week and a half later, I got chopped at 3-6. And it was confusing as to why at first, because 3-6 was slated to go on, a, on a Okinawa deployment, like a UDP or uh, I think it was Okinawa. Yeah. And so we're, we're slated for Okinawa. I check in to three, six, you know, something like, uh, August, July. I think I checked in July, late July, early August. And as luck would have it, the Sergeant major uh, of the battalion was out on leave. And so we sat at the battalion level for um all the way till september so yeah, we, we, say, I didn't, we didn't meet until september we so. were there july august and then in september he came off a of leave and then chopped us to our elements and so then i chopped the second which again for me coming in about to pick up sergeant that's second kilo kilo company yep kilo company second platoon got chopped over there and um and ultimately, I, I was still a little bit confused because when I got there, they were TO1 squad leaders. And I was about to pick up sergeants. Like, you're not going to put me under another sergeant, you know. And I've led a squad already kind of thing. Like, so I was a little confused about what was going down. And then, um, and you know, then things changed. That took a wildly drastic turn. To say the least, um, the other... Uh, the other uh, type of deployment that they were talking about was possibly going to Al Assad. Okay. And okay. Cuts, that was cut sandbags and uh, just break, basically break Al Assad down, which I'm sure just would have been just a joy of a deployment. Yeah, I'm sure. I definitely would have still got out when I, when I got done with that one. Wouldn't have changed much. <laughs> no. Right. And so, yeah, so um, that's what we were working with. I got over to to three, six and we're TO one squad leaders, TO on the platoon. You guys had already been to CACs. You'd already done an yeah, entire workup. The whole, the whole workup. You were in the shoot. Three, six was already in the shoot. When I got there as the most combat, uh, combat ready element, I think on the, on probably I mean, on the East coast. I think the only one that was, uh, ahead of us was one, six, one, six, who, because who ultimately we, we shared did. our fate. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that's where it was. I think we were on like, nine or ten months of the workup at that point right like they were starting to kick me i was out to corporal's course at one point and a bunch of different we were starting to get a lot of tad like quick schools like month-long schools that right. you could just kind of knock out real quick right but i think they knew what was coming down the pipe they probably did i mean i mean they, they seen the writing on the wall at least right right and so they knew we were leaving that night 
seven months before then. Yeah, I don't think so. <laughs> I think that might have been a little slow. But um, right. Um, yeah, and so you want to get into the book real quick. You have some spots that you want to kind of touch on regarding regarding this timeline. Um, and so you go ahead and kick that. I mean, I'm just going to go ahead and read this first paragraph of the chapter. President Barack Obama approves a significant troop increase for Afghanistan. On December 2nd, 2009, President Barack Obama orders an extra 30,000 troops to deploy to Afghanistan in support of Operation Enduring Freedom. This was not a decision the president took lightly at all. Upon the initial request from General Stanley McChrystal, the president reportedly deliberated on whether to sign off on the surge for nearly three months. General Stanley McChrystal, the U.S. commander in Afghanistan, welcomed the speech, saying he had been given a clear military mission and the necessary resources. So with those 30,000 troops, that basically sets the stage for us no longer going to Okinawa. Right. And we now know we're going to Afghanistan. We don't know where, but they, we I think there was whispers of a place called the Helmand River Valley or Helmand Province. Like that was the hot spot, I think. Yeah. In that yeah, time. Yeah, I think that, you know, the intelligence came in to say that this is where they were, this is where they were holding out, trying to make that final stand or rebuild or um you know reconsolidate. And uh, and sure enough, yeah. So the speech comes out from the president, and then um, and then everything changes. Being the the most, um, well, following one six, being the most combat ready element, we were chalked away from Okinawa's deployment, and and now into this Hellman River Valley, and, and um, knew it was going to get 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 kinetic, or be kinetic. We and that's it. We knew it could be. Um, that's for sure. And I know that as soon as that happened, there were some adjustments made. Let's say to the platoon. Um, this is a good point to get into transition of leadership and uh, the transition of leadership. And anybody that's not ever been in the in the service, and especially in, in the infantry. Um, we have constant changeover, right? From people getting out to people EASing, you know, EASing and ending their active service or PCSing and just switching, making a permanent change of station. You know, whether that be you're moving from Camp Lejeune to uh, Cali, uh, for instance, and going out out there, Hawaii, different areas. And, and then you got mm -hmm. the people that are going to lateral move out of the O3 field and into a different field. So it's this constant shift. And when the orders came out that we were getting chopped away from Oki and going into a kinetic fight in the Helmand River Valley, um, you know, personnel changes had to happen. And at that time, I still didn't have a squad. I was still at the battalion level, um, which seemed like I did a urinalysis every two days on somebody's company, somebody's platoon. And because I was new and I didn't have a platoon, <laughs> I was tasked with some of my other uh, fellow corporals and sergeants from uh, 3-2 that came with me to be the urinalysis watchers of PP watching. And um, so we, we, we stayed locked in doing that for like a solid 30 days waiting on Sergeant Major to come back. He chops us in. We leave, go to Kilo 2, 
and um, then then the order comes out, changes everything, and we lose Kelk and Creel. Yep. And um, Kelk and Creel were the two squad leaders. Uh, Kelk second. had third squad, right? And Creel was mine. And Sergeant Creel had you over in, in second. second squad. Yep. Uh, so I want to go ahead and talk about um, what do you want to know? Yeah, man. I, I you look. Look, I've been in a situation uh, a couple of times that I was put in there. Um, I'll talk about my side of it first, I cool. think, and then and then I'd love to get, you know, your perspective on the transition and on how things went down because I know, and I know it's a sore subject, but I think it's a necessary subject to bring up, sure. regardless of who the personnel is. Yep. Um, there's and, a lesson learned in there somewhere. And absolutely, um, absolutely, there's lessons. And yeah, there's lessons that I learned the hard way going to three two. I transitioned as a fast company corporal to come in and take a squad over from, you know, you know, a, a corporal who uh, who had already been to Iraq, already proved himself in the arena and was looking forward to taking over the squad. And then here I come from, you know, from fast team, uh, which do not hold a very good reputation getting fast NCOs or security forces NCOs to the, to the grunts, because typically you're out of your, you don't have MOS credibility and depending on where you go, you might be put in a bunker in Kings Bay. You know, I got lucky, but nobody knows that right. I'm checking in. All they know is I'm a fast guy. It's like, uh, you know, not this again. And so I check in and then I check into, to Kilo company. And, um, that was rough. Because the guys that I checked in with were late that morning. Uh, it was like half of us were on time and half of us were late. And the half of us on time were like, damn, we can't leave them. Because like, we're our buddies. Nah. So so we bit that one and we all checked in late. And that, that's in the book. It ended horribly. Um, checking in to your company command late on the very first day of check-in. <clears throat> and to do it to that gunny that... Uh, has the tanned up, dried out leather skin, smokes, you know, a pack of new, mm -hmm. you know, a pack of cowboy killers. A day. Yeah. So, uh, he was that guy. And I could have swore at some point during our ass shoe his nose was going to start bleeding. And, um, it didn't that day, but it did in the future. And so, uh, yeah, we move in, whatever I, I talk, I talk to the company staff and I get assigned to, to my first sergeant later that afternoon, first sergeant Petrakis later that afternoon. He, Assigns me, uh, uh, Herbie and Davis, some uh, some other characters from the book that came over um, from three two with me and signs us to Lima, um, or I'm sorry, signs us to Kilo, and then no, sir, sorry, major that signed you to Kilo. Uh, second, you signed us to second platoon first sergeant signs second sergeant major signs Kilo. Okay, so boom, I get the second platoon. Second platoon's full, doing the whole thing. Now I got to find out a way. A, I got to figure out who I'm going to lead. B, I got to figure out you know, what they know and uh, and how good they are, how proficient they are at their job. I don't know their squad leader. I talked to them, got a pretty good turnover with them. Um, and still at this point, you know, in time before the troop increase, I didn't know what squad I was taking. So I was just kind of feeling out the platoon. I remember we had a, uh, we had like a McCree hike that you guys had worked up to. And um, it was supposed to be like 20 mile hike. And you guys had worked up to it prior to me getting to the unit. 
And when I was on the boxing team, we didn't do much ruck hiking. Uh, and so I was not prepared. And even the command even said, you know, you're not prepared for this if you haven't hiked in a year. And there's no shame if you want to take duty and you want to set it out, whatever the case. Conveniently, Scotty Davis had already soaked up that duty because he had surgery on his wrist and he wasn't able to go on the hike anyway. So that, even though that wasn't an option to me in my head in the first place, I'm like, I got to give these guys a reason to trust me. And um, the deployment's coming very fast. They've already done a workup. Better get in shape. Time to give them a reason, right? And so I remember doing that hike and I killed myself. I led second on that hike. And um, I led second on that hike because and I wasn't even second squad leader yet because Creel was leading the platoon at the time because Staff Sergeant was at a uh, small unit leader course, I think. Yes, and something out of, like that. And out of pocket. Yeah. And E-Man, I believe, was at Mountain. He was at Mountain Leader's course. Mountain Leader's course. And so I checked into another sergeant, and then I got to go on this hike. And I'm like, oh, my God. And um, so we go on the hike, and... I, I manned up on like the last two or three legs and carried the 240. Everybody was hurting. I was hurting. Um, but that was my first embrace of the suck with a new group of guys. And they at least knew that I was going to put out until I couldn't go anymore. And um, say what you want about conditioning hikes. Say what you want about um, hard, fast, you know, break it off PT from a, from a company command. But doing that kind of stuff definitely builds – Team building, team building, and go do right back to things. That. Do hard things and build your team. And it also builds character. A hundred percent. And I mean, you know, I was never a big proponent of hikes. I, I didn't like them. I thought that there was absolutely no use for a hike other than to break Marines. You know, that was my contention until we got to Marja. And when we got to Marja, we had to do sometimes 17 click clears under fire half the time, you know, moving always, little water, feet throbbing. LCPs. Leather uh, leather pair, uh, personnel carriers. LPCs, LPCs there you right. go. Barking on them caddies. And um, I remember getting done with that that clear. I don't know if you remember, we had to go all the way down like by Kathy over towards where like Camp Hansen was and then back out. It was horrible. Yeah. And um, I remember after that being in pain, man. But it wasn't as bad as that hike. Well, I wouldn't know it I gave wasn't it, on that hike. You would and I just admitted it. You just admitted it. So, so to the cool. world. It's not like I wasn't I wasn't skipping out on it. I was TAD. I'm, I'm not going to go if I'm TMD. Of course not. <laughs> Why would you? Nobody would. Check. So, and I had already done the 1220, which was supposed to be a 20 miler. And it was only 12. Because. That's the one so many people fell out of. I think it was they hot, right? filled all. The, uh, what are they, safety VIX? Mm-hmm. I think they filled all the safety VIX and we're like, oh, okay, we got to turn around and go back. Kinking it short, boys. And we weren't like, the pace was so slow because there were so many fallouts that uh, they weren't, we weren't going to make the 20 miles before the sun came up. And it was like, what, mid August or something like that? Mid-July. Yeah, they said it was like mid July and it was like 100 degrees with the sun down or something. Yeah, it like was 90 in, something degrees. And stupid humidity, like 100% humidity. We yeah, were walking man. in water. Online. <laughs> Amphibious, as we said. Um, okay, so yeah, so that's my transition and my transition piece there. You know, if you're a new leader and you're coming in, you know, and you mean to lead these men, feel them out. Feel them out. See who's got what. See who bonds good with who, especially once you get your squad. You know, for me, 
I always took the the approach of coming in and seeing what they knew, um, seeing how seeing how a new element would work together, seeing seeing who I can trust versus who I can't trust uh, to get the job done. You know, who's a CEMF and who's not. You know, and uh, that's can do motherfucker. So we just say CDMF from now on, so we can leave that out. But hey, you get it done, and that's that person that little little supervision to no supervision. Hey, I need this done, and I need you to do it, and I need you to get it done without me. And that person can go get it done. And I like to establish who those people are. I mean, typically you want it to be your team leader. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's your team leaders, and you got hard chargers in there too, where you can just be like, "Hey, I need this done, and it doesn't need to be done by a corporal. I can use my corporal to do something else." You know, absolutely. So, absolutely. And so that was, you know, take, take, take from that what you, what you will, but, um, you know, coming in hard and, and just being the new sheriff in town, I didn't see that work very often, not for me. And I've seen other guys take that approach and it just, it just wasn't good. And so finally we find out that Kelk and Creel are, are going to push on and do, do good things in life, but it's not going to be going to Hellman with us. And so for me, that was great. I'm like, cool. I'm seconds open, thirds open. I know I'm getting one of them, right? And then boom, I get assigned a second, which was, you know, couldn't ask for anything better uh, in hindsight. And, and really in foresight, I was ready to get my squad. It's like, I don't care which one it is. I need to get them. I'm um, running out of time. Um, I'd like to get your perspective on all that. Well, I don't know about the whole Kelp thing, BNG wasn't my squad later, but um, <clears throat> me and Creel were tight. Like he was my squad leader, and we were tight. We'd go out to the bar there together, drink together, run together, TT together. You train. If you're smoking, you're smoking in the smoke pit. Doesn't matter. You you're doing everything together. You're a family. And uh, when he told us that. Uh, respect level was at 100 we're now negative 100 mm -hmm. and i have nothing else to say to you at this point um, right. you know don't even want to hear about your excuses you just abandoned your squad you did an entire almost an entire year long maybe not year long all right 10 month workup and we're getting ready to go to the hornet's nest mm -hmm. of the time and you're not coming so I mean, I'd like to think it worked out, but um, still, you can't you can't replace that feeling, and uh, that was that made it very hard for me to trust you mm. up front. At first, I uh, I didn't want to get too close at first, just in case you decided you didn't want to come to Afghanistan too, you know, so. Got it. That's that's what I got to say on that one. Got it. And so, what about the? Do you have any kind of gauge on on was this a in the squad? Was this a, a generally held view, um, or is this is this just something you think personally, as far as you know, that you held? No, I, I'm not going to speak for the rest of the squad, but right. uh, I definitely. I don't know. I really don't. Yeah, it wasn't wasn't like you guys got in circles and talked about this. Not really. This kind of thing. I mean, right? 
at that point, we really, we really didn't have a choice. I mean, we're going to have a mission. And you got to just, <coughs> every, you just got to push it on. You just got to push on. That's yeah. all you got to do. And yeah. Know. And you're not changing it. Right. So it's like, okay, yeah, there's nothing you can do. You just got to deal with the situation. Right. Like this happened. You have to now, take a bite of the shit sandwich. Just get it over with. Plug your nose and let's roll. Right. You know. Right. Check. So transition as a new leader, and and then the first couple of training ops, and we talk about them in the book. But I only got two training ops before we left. We went and zeroed our rifles and got a good combat zero on everybody's optics, and uh, and then we went to the helo yeah, dunker. Yeah, the helo dunker. We went to the helo dunker, and um, least favorite evolution. Yeah, I get. Ever. I get in a pretty good detail in the book about the Hilo Dunker, uh, but it suffice to say that it's a hollowed out bird that's up over about a 20 foot pool that has safety divers in it. You strap in um, like you would be strapped in on the side of the bird. And, and, uh, and, and, you know, there's a progression in the pool. They start with chairs and, and, you know, they start with breathing apparatuses, you know, for oxygen underneath the water. Um, and then you then you you evolve up to getting in that in that dunk tank and um it's on hydraulics too so just like a helicopter all the weight is at the top and uh, as soon as that thing ditches if it's a water ditch that thing's flipping upside down and uh, so this is try to train you how to get out of that situation right and so the culminating event is where you put blackout goggles on you strap into the bird it's about ten feet above the pool's water full gear. You're in a full kit. Um, you do have a rifle. Basically, your full combat load, you know, minus the ammo because you're in a pool and you're training. And, um, you know, and then it starts and it drops down. It hits the water. The water comes in fast and it goes one of two ways. Either you go back first down into the water or you go face first coming up over down into the water. And uh, and then you're on. Then you're on. You got to go through your, you got to go through your checklist of, what you're supposed to do well i had a few things to add to that anyways and you just talked to me about the helo dunker like i wasn't there the <laughs> entire time well i mean everybody else wasn't there i was just trying to I know, give I them know. context of the suck that we were in and uh the final evolution is actually full kit like you said blackout goggles and the entire squad has to get out all together and if one person fails, the entire squad has to go back through it again, if I remember right. I don't know. They may do it differently nowadays, but I remember that's how we did it. Because I think we had to do it twice because one person, it may have been me. I don't, I'm not going to say it was me. No, it's definitely me. No. I have the story. Okay. Locked in. I can tell you the story real quick, just as a segue. Okay. I still have another part. No, I'll come right back to you. But the reason we had to do it multiple times was... Uh, simply because I was being an arrogant prick. And, um, you know, when they show us the video of how you're supposed to do it, and you got like this prim and proper studious little Marine, and you're like, he's not freaking out at all because he's like an instructor, right? But they're videotaping him, and they're like, wait until all the bubbles clear. Once the bubbles clear, extend your rifle and drop it. Yeah. Once you've dropped your rifle, retrieve your breathing apparatus from your kit, Extend the hose all the way out. Place it in your mouth. Dawn and clear and begin exfil procedures. So my arrogant ass was like, I'm going to do it just like that guy. I'm actually going to wait till all the bubbles are gone. And so 
I was, went across the pool and switched out my air can. I put my old air can in the old air can bucket. And I grabbed a new air can. Oh, I remember this now. Mm, out of the new can bucket. And so here I am. I'm like, cocky me. I'm going to go over there and do it awesome like the guy in the video. And so I wait till the bubbles clear. Running out of air because it takes a while for the bubbles to clear. And I went backwards that time, which meant it was quicker into the water and my nose filled up and burned. And so I'm trying to swallow that down. Like I'm, I'm managing the nose burn. I got my eyes open and I'm, you know, I'm watching the little bubbles and finally the little bubbles clear. I'm like, I got this. So, you know, like, like it, like an asshole. I like phase my rifle out, dropped my rifle, retrieved my breathing apparatus. Extended the hose all the way out. Now I'm like running out of air, but I'm like, it doesn't matter. Because you have air coming. Because I'm about to dawn and clear this thing. And so I dawn hard, which is what you're supposed to do. Clear any of the water out of the mm -hmm. apparatus, you know, the, the, the mouthpiece. And there was no air in that can when I went to retrieve <laughs> another breath. And um, the bitch in me came out in the light 2.0. Like I was, I went from being the studious, slow representation of doing what was on the video to like the oh, oh my god I, I gotta get out of here and uh so i was so you know i guess panicked you could say yeah that when i let go of everything i lost my hold on my exfil so then when i grabbed my exfil it was in a different spot so when i twisted to exfil i was now swimming down oh. in my blackout goggles and i got a stern grab on like the lower elbow by a scuba diver and he just ran me straight to the top we get to the top and I'm he like, knew you were yeah, yeah, it was funny, man. <laughs> like he came up and he's already got like this big smile on his face. You know, I'm supposed to be the squad leader of the squad that just did perfect except for the squad leader. And he's like, I, I put the blackout goggles on. I'm coughing. I got snot running over. He's got this big smile. He's like, man, I knew you were doomed when you came out. You went straight to the bottom of the pool. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah, so that was definitely. But we can go back to um, the other point that you had. One, I don't like water. In that situation, because it's not under my control. Check. <laughs> Me either. Uh, about three years later, I had to do the helo dunker after getting out of the Marine Corps. That's interesting. In the civilian world. For, to go offshore for the oil field. Got to know how to how to get out of that ditching bird, huh? Way easier. <laughs> One could imagine that the civilian world does it a bit different than ours. No factor. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> now, I remember we had to do multiple fuselages while in the Marine Corps. Mm. In the civilian world, one, and you don't sit against the bulkhead. You sit like it's a civilian aircraft. Okay. So it's way easier. And you do it in pairs, not in a squad. So if your guy in your pair is decent, you're probably going to be okay. You and don't, make you don't have to wait on the other 11 guys exactly. to not jack it up. Right? Mm -hmm. And... I think one of the pairs, they made the other guy who could, the guy who could do it, made him do it again. And then after the partner messed it up, the second time they're like, okay, only you who can't Go to conform. the recycle bin, Maria. <laughs> yeah. You go do it again and you you're going to do guys. it until you get it, okay? Because exactly. <laughs> you have to pass this course. <laughs> you see those guys over on the left set of bleachers? Go set with them. Yes, that's pretty much what it was. <laughs> go set with them. And figure out what you did wrong, Marine. <laughs> Pretty much. You will so, be remediated. 
But when they told me I had to go do the helo dunker, I pretty much had post-traumatic stress at that point. Like, oh my God, I have to go do this with a bunch of civilians who I don't know. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it wasn't that bad. It's never as bad as you make it out in your mind. No. no. Except for the, the helo dunker one, of course. Uh, worse than I made it out in my mind to be. Actually, it wasn't for me until that breathing apparatus was in view. <laughs> See, when they gave us the breathing apparatuses, I was actually, I was actually okay. Now, if I'd have gotten an empty one, it would have been freak out city for sure. Yeah, and I knew I was twelve feet under. I was like, "Oh my god, this is bad!" Like all that was going through my head was, hmm, "All you're gonna do is pass out, and they're gonna bring you to the top of IV. You'll be all right." Yeah, all I was thinking about was, well, "Here's your first <laughs> shallow water blackout, Ryan. Congratulations, <laughs> you've moved up a new tier in uh, jacking this up in the water." So. Didn't happen. Made it out. But I think that's enough on Hilo Dunker. Yeah, Hilo Dunker was something. And, and again, we go through all the evolution. I go through all the evolutions in the book of, you know, working up to that, to that final culminating event. And um, but I think that was a good team building, kind of deal for the squad being, you know, oh, for new, sure, new, new squad leader and all that. I'm I mean, not saying I trusted you after that, but you know, it was close. It was close. There, there was some team building. <laughs> there was some team building. Yeah. Yeah, and at this point, I haven't even learned, you know, the names of, of all of you yet. And a matter of fact, right before the Hilo Dunker is when I was pinned. That was when I was promoted. So um, That's true. I forgot you had come to Corporal. Yep, yep. Uh, so I got promoted. We did the Hilo Dunker. And I almost drowned on day one of being, or day sergeant. two. Day two of being a sergeant, so that was pretty <laughs> sweet. Um, the one interesting fact that they told us that in the classroom portion, which I wish would have lasted a lot longer. Right. They said, uh, the more times you fly on a helo, the more chance you will have of getting in a, in a, in a collision or a, a crash. Seems, seems pretty logical to me. It does. <laughs> they did stress that, I suppose. And you know what always impressed me was uh, the last time that, that I went there, I think it was with, the, with you guys. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure there was a gunny there that survived a ditched helicopter off the side of one of the new ships. I don't know if he was there, but we definitely watched a video of it, and that was pretty crazy. They had now I know it was in the video, but I'm pretty sure that the gunny giving our course was on that curve. But again, I can't remember for no, sure. But the video is intense because the guy talks about, you know, the the bird goes to ditch, and um, you know, obviously it's going to be violent. Right. Uh, when you hit the water, it's just, it doesn't matter. That it's water at that point really you're going to hit hard things are going to get black and he talked about uh, i think he was i think i think in the video he talked about being on the 50 and um when the bird hit it actually knocked him out broke a couple of his ribs unbeknownst to him at the time and uh and then he wakes up and here's this ditching birds going down and i want to say he come out of the hellhole i think he did come out of the hellhole, which would have been going up, up because the bird would have flipped down right that's the best place to come out at that point oh for sure um, the well, it, the coming out of the period is a good hole. thing. Yeah, the hellhole. For anybody that doesn't know, you know that's the that's what we call it. But it's just, it's a bottom exfil point out of the. It's where you fast rope from, or they bird. can hook up uh, in the bigger on the big cargo ones. I think that's where the uh, pallets get hooked yep, up. Pallets get hooked up. For well, the, for the yeah for rigging, right? And so yeah, that's I'm not an air winger. I don't know how all that stuff works. That was pretty crazy. And then then you know uh, getting back to back to the book it. After following that evolution, um, we'd done one field BZO evolution since I got there, and then that evolution, and then we we kicked out on um, on pre pre deployment yep. leave pretty quick. 
Um, and by the time we picked, by the time we kicked out on pre-deployment leave, um, it was the opinion of the command that we absolutely were going to Helmand, and they started floating the city of Marja uh, around. Yeah, we heard that name. They started floating it around because I remember by the time I got home, I knew where I was going, and I knew told my old man like, "Hey, this one's going to be real." Right. As far as what they're telling me, so don't watch the news, right? No right. news is good you news. Said that in, you say that in the book, if I remember right. Yeah, yeah. No news is good news, and and uh, that was a, you know, that was a trip. You know, anytime that you're going home, and and as the marine or or airman, soldier, sailor, um, you know, you know what you do for a living, especially, you know, the special operators, critical skills operators and line infantry fellows. Every, you know, we know what we do. We know what we do for a living. And uh, a lot of times we don't uh, expose exactly the, the details of what we do for a living to our families and for obvious reasons. And, um, you know, I just remember that time. I think that was, I think Marjorie was my fifth deployment. And I remember at that time going home, knowing like from what the command saying, this one's real. And, and so I, I, you know, spent tons of time with family. Um, you know, I got three brothers uh, from the original marriage that my dad started over. So then I got like some younger siblings too. And, uh, you know, now. Um, so spend time with family, spend time with, you know, my parents, my brothers, my sisters and, and quality time because you know what you're going to. And it's always hard because when you go home, well, at least in my experience, when I would go home, go home on leave and it's like your whole family has your entire leave package planned out for you. Right. Right. And you don't want to do any of it. Yeah. The dates, time. times, where you're going to be, who you're meeting, what, when the pictures are going to be taken, all, right. all of these kinds of things. And, um, and you're sitting there kind of knowing what you're about to get into and you know that they have no clue because they're, you know, whatever. So I talk about that in the, in the book and, and, you know, everybody handles going away and, and, and different in different ways, but, um, coming back off, a uh, coming back off a of post-deployment or pre-deployment leave, it was like one, two skidoo and we were going to be out the door. Yeah. There wasn't, it was maybe a week, maybe a week. Maybe. No, I think it was like, yeah, I think it was a week to 10 days we, because we got a boot, we got a boot drop from SOI to make sure I talked to everybody Christmas. else. Yeah. Those, those poor bastards and, and lions, man, we'll talk about them in the book, but you want to talk about a trial by fire. These guys came from the school of infantry, which is their school following boot camp, And they learn the basic skills of being a rifleman, not saying that's bad, but they learn the basic fundamental building blocks. And in less than 10 days from graduation, we're on a plane to, we're on the, we're on the warbird. I don't even know if I knew all four of their names that got dropped to our platoon before we left. No way. I knew ours. I knew the guy we got. Yeah. Old lips. Bridges. bridges. Yeah. PFC Bridges. And then there was a Brady and a Breland. And they were another squad. They, they, they cropped us all the bees from Bradshaw. Yep. And Bradshaw, all the bees from whatever company they came from. We took that section. Right. One six probably got the A's. <laughs> for the situation, I don't know, we're going to go over it, but I'm impressed. Oh, man. I mean, I couldn't imagine talk that. Up, talk about some warriors. So, so these kids, yeah, 18 years old. Just out of boot camp, probably super stoked about going to the fleet. Maybe not, right? Right. And then they go to the fleet and they deploy to Afghanistan to the fight of their lives 10 days later. 
Well, you know what? They all made it. So, uh, they, when they got to be not boots anymore on their second pump, like they got their first, they didn't even have to go through a workup. Like that's some of the hardest parts for a boot. I mm. think, you know, they got to go straight to the. Yeah. Shit, yeah. And there's of. probably, there's, there's good I mean, and bad to both situations. Don't sure, get me wrong. Sure. <laughs> sure. Um, definitely. You know, in this situation was just an unfortunate situation where we needed four, four dudes. You know, I think the I think that ultimately the company took more than four dudes uh, from that crop, but we got ours and, and we needed them and we used them and they came in handy and they were awesome. Yeah. And so, boom, we come back from pre-deployment leave. We get our guys from SOI and then we make our way to Cherry Point and we leave after the first of the year. In yeah, I, think it was, I think it was January 2, 1 or 2. We, we got to Cherry Point I think and then we, we decided on. we were going to stay the night there because they weren't really ready to leave right so uh we played that game that sleep in the airport game not even really an airport it's more than just a place with chairs wasn't even really and sleep either there wasn't even a lot of chairs <laughs> no the shenanigans started there i mean we didn't even hit the deployment yet and we had people fall asleep and me and herbie crawled around tying people's boots together of course it's our spot and uh yeah yeah we're like hey man if you're gonna put us here and all of these guys are gonna fall asleep with boots on we're trying all of them together and that was a mess um afterwards good job yeah and so boom then we're on the plane um we're on that 20-hour venture germany yeah Yeah, romstein stopped in romstein on the way over didn't get off not true stopped in romstein on the way home we stopped in shannon ireland on the way over was it Shannon? Yeah, because we didn't get off in Shannon. Not true. It was, I don't know. Whatever you say. Whichever true. one. We drank beer in Romstein on the way back. We drank beer in no, we drank, Shannon on I the way back. I know we went to Germany on the way back. Okay, sure. so then it was Shannon, Ireland on the way back. Okay. Either, either way, we stop. We refuel. We have a small break. You know, people were rubbing the Ambien and the Robotussin out of themselves because, you know, that's, that's what a lot of guys would do, not in an irresponsible way. But when you got 19 hours to sit in one chair... And watch the same three movies over and over. You want to go to sleep. You want to get that out of it. Um, so everybody's waking up. We get there. And I think we landed in Kazakhstan. Is that true? Yeah. I think Cape Manus. I think, yeah. I think Manus Air Base in Kazakhstan. And um, we landed there and did Kyr- the custom. Kyrgyzstan. Kyrgyzstan. And did the, did the rigmarole with uh, getting our gear squared away and ready to now be put on a military bird so we could fly in the zone. And so we stayed there for a couple of days, um, playing spades and getting gear ready, and uh, and then we boarded. It was so cold. Yeah, it was snowing. Yeah, it was uh, snowing when we landed. It was snowing, and it was not snowing in North Carolina when we left. That's a fact. That is a fact. And so cold, snowy, you know, whatever. Boom, we move out of there, and we take uh, military aircraft into Camp Leatherneck. Um, and Camp Leatherneck was joined with Camp Basham, which was the Brits' side of the base. Yeah. And um, and I go over in the book kind of how that sets up. And if you want to know more about this, there's a lot more going on in the book uh, detail-wise about the bases, things that happened at the bases, things like that. But just as this first brief overview, we get over to Leatherneck, and then there's like an acclimatization, uh, where we were a climatization period where, you know, you get used to the weather, which at that time it was cold, so it wasn't a whole lot to get used to. 
um, maybe just the air, and then you get your your JAG core rules of engagement. First off, and um, and then I think that was the last time we got good haircuts uh, for. Don't even call them good for a minute, but yeah. So we got our haircuts, we got our briefs, we got our rules of engagement, we got everything down, and then the next trip was to Dwyer. Yeah, getting uh, getting ever C130 Dwyer, Dwyer, I think. Uh, getting ever closer. Uh, to the invasion and so we get to Dwyer and at this point we're Dwyer shaping really uh, we get attached to our Afghan National Army counterparts we get um, to start working with them now we're in zone the other battalions and companies and forces that were involved in the invasion were shaping Marja as we were sitting you know awaiting our time to fill the role yeah. as it were at Dwyer and we took that time to do on-off drills with tour tourniquets. Uh, I know me and you personally took time to uh, seek out the JTECs and the JFOs and learn the Excalibur rounds and the call for fires that they needed to, you know, the different, uh, the, the specific details on calling an Excalibur or, or on calling a high Mars rocket. Right. Or, and, and these were things that prior to this in my career I had used. And so me, you know, you, I, the, you know, Bennett, we would be over there soaking up the knowledge, getting it from them, running prac apps through ourselves. Meanwhile, you know, helping train the ANA day to day and then getting used to the culture, a culture that is completely not like ours. Right. And I would say that first can deck that we invaded with was amazing. I mean, uh, these, these, these were some warriors, but man, there's a cultural, there's a cultural difference. Well, at first two with those ranges, it was a little dangerous on, on a few of those ranges that I remember we ran. Uh, one, the one outside. Yeah. The, oh, well, was yeah. that Dwyer? Yeah, I think it was Dwyer. Dwyer. Yeah, the all the squad leaders and team leaders had to be the range RSOs for the buddy rushes, mm -hmm. and they were doing it all by themselves. No, no other Marines were with them. Yeah, and with NATO weapons, some of them for the first time. For the first time, which yeah. was yeah. So it's a little bit I of a learning curve. There's a lot. I of... might have put my nut flap on my black jacket for that one which i very rarely wore and uh i was like yeah we might want to throw it in horse collar too let's let's go ahead and throw the whole shit on <laughs> let's put the whole thing together yeah so and then you know uh they river cityed the phones just meaning they cut the yeah. phone lines down like a week before um for for opsec purposes obviously and and that's great because we're the ones going in so we want to have that too um, you didn't want to risk a junior Marine not knowing, not understanding, you know, the gravity of the situation, calling home and giving anything away. But then again, they announced that we were coming and where we were coming, you know, right before we went anyway. So but they didn't know we were going to fly helicopters in the middle of the city, but most, I mean, they may have, but they may not have. So yeah, most likely. But, um, so then we make a, we thought we were going to push from Dwyer, but I don't think that their, their pad could hold all the. The all the helos that now, we were going to take. I don't know take. where one six pushed from uh, their helo company. I don't know. I think it was Bravo. Yeah, it was Bravo company, but I think they pushed. I think that's why there were so many birds on the tarmac that night. Oh, I didn't know we pushed from the same spot. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure, sure they were going to push sure from Dwyer. Just... We pushed from Leatherneck or whatever. Mm -hmm. But no. we ended up uh, going back to Leatherneck. Yeah, night. so so we thought we were going from Dwyer. We were We pushed back to, to Leatherneck, I think, two days prior. Two days, yeah. If you remember right, we found phones because we ended up calling home again. Maybe. Because that was an interesting phone call with my father. Oh, yeah? Tell me. Um, so a little bit about how I 
ended up joining the Marine Corps. Um, dad, I hope you're all right with me telling the story, Dad. So it doesn't matter. It's getting told anyway. Kind of has to be. <laughs> I've led into it too much. Sorry, Pops. <laughs> Love you. Uh, dad was a former Marine. I think I had mentioned that earlier. Um, and uh, also a retired prison prison guard, a correctional officer. And uh, when I was in high school, I was kind of hemming and hawing over joining the Marine Corps. And he ended up calling the recruiter from the prison phone and telling him our home phone number and telling him to ask for a certain named individual, me, and I may want to talk to him. So that pretty much spurred it on. That's how I joined the Marine Corps. And I did not know that until I called him from Camp Leatherneck in Marge or in uh, Helen Province. And he told me that story. And I said, really, Dad? Kind of biting you in the ass right now, isn't it? Because <laughs> your only child is getting ready to go on some big operation, isn't he? He's like, I love you. Battle. Yeah, battle. Battle. Yeah. So. Yeah, man. That's the that's the story of kind of how I got got in the Marine. Well, I say that, you know, but it was always going to happen. It just he kind of that pushed was the, the issue, maybe. <laughs> yeah, the nudge. Yeah, Daddy Charette just wanted to make sure sometimes that he gave the need, proper pat. Sometimes your your uh, your compass just needs that little uh, that little, little deviation. Yeah, little nudge. Yep. Yeah. So, but it was just funny because we did find the we found those phones. I remember because we walked almost all the way into the Brits area. I remember walking a long way from where we were stationed. Yeah. And there was two or three phones right there that we used. And I think we like had to hide because I don't think we were supposed to use it. Sounds like he pretty much completely blew upset to do that anyway, right? So No, he didn't I didn't and I didn't I didn't tell him where, I didn't tell him how. I he just, just could feel it. Dad no. Dad knew. Yeah, man. Yeah. I mean he's like, Okay, he hasn't he's called in a week Marine, and a half. He's got now brother. he's calling. Yeah. There's a crack in his voice. Like he knew. Yeah, yeah, and he knew just to watch the watch the news, and as you know from some of these pictures on the wall here, mm. if Dad didn't find it on the internet, it probably didn't exist, right? Because he was retired at that point too, right? So he didn't have. I'm not saying he doesn't have anything going on, but that was his job for seven months was to try and find as much information as possible on what we were doing for sure, right? And like, <laughs> never does it ever happen when you say. Don't watch the news. No, they're it's gonna, like then now telling they're a four-year-old <laughs> not to watch something. It's like, oh, really? And so, like, I did the same thing with my wife. I'm like, no news is good news. Keep the news right. off. Don't watch it because this 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 one might be a little testy. They're yeah. saying this one might be testy. And what does she do? She gets on her email, knows that um, our combat correspondents and reporters C.J. Shivers and Tyler Farr who shot these photos and. Helped out a lot with the with bringing the book to fruition. She knew they were going, and they were with the New York Times. So what does she do? She finds a way to get her email that anything that says three six kilo company second platoon Marge Afghanistan any of those keywords would shoot articles about that to her email. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, that's like the complete opposite of don't watch the news. That's like begging the news to, to come tell to you. you. Yeah, <laughs> and. Um, Thank God there wasn't Twitter. 
right. a big thing back then because uh, hashtags would have been all over Marja. <laughs> I know, right? And so, so yeah, you know, that's it's wild. Yeah, it's wild. It's wild. Different, different, different things going on, different perspectives, and and I get it. And the other thing is, I didn't. Uh, I had two contracts sitting in front of me whenever I did join or when I was getting ready to sign the papers or mm. get the paperwork ready or whatever. My recruiter had to figure out which uh, MOS I was going to be. As you know, now I'm a mechanic in the civilian world. Right. right? So it was either diesel mechanic in the Marine Corps or a fast company, which eventually 0311. I got to be a grunt somehow. Dad talked me into... The 0311 with security forces. You know, it's, you know, it's crazy. Like most parents try to talk their kids out of out that, of it. Yeah, out of he that. talked me your into dad, it. Your dad was like, "Hey, well, he was like, go talk to my son." You're, uh, and I had a great. I actually had a great recruiter. I think because he knew, like, you're not going to get anything over these people, right? But he wasn't. He was a mortarman, 0341. Your recruiter was, yeah, nice. Sergeant Santiago. It's intense. Oh. Um, but he told me, he said, if you don't do it, you're going to regret it the rest of your life. And guess what? I don't have to worry about that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, and, and you got it in. Like, yeah, all the way. In. Yeah. All the way in. So, check. Okay, and then, um, you know, and then we're in it, right? And then, so we're at Leatherneck, and we did a dry run. Because somebody wrecked a bus. Oh, yeah, that's right. So we're like on the way to the tarmac to load up on birds. And it was probably a lie, right? Probably just lied to us like, nope, just to yeah, piss us off Conditions might have been bad or whatever. Yeah, or it could have been air. could have been something with choppers. It could have been anything. But whatever happens, one of the buses tipped over in the ditch on the way up to the tarmac. We ended up getting told to turn around. We go back to this GP-10, and we only have the stuff we're pushing in. We're fully loaded down. The only piece of warming gear that I had was... The uh, tarp. You didn't even have a poncho on. I brought my I, backpack was full of claymore mines, hand grenades, two forty rounds, and white phosphorus sixty millimeter mortars everywhere. Mortars and um, right, mortars, yeah, sixties, yeah. And see, so we go back to this GP ten. It's like this is sweet. What? Okay. So, hey, hey, lesson coming up for you right here. Lesson to take away: Do not use your tarp to cover up with <laughs> at night in the cold. Case in point, you will wake up like I did using that thick tarp to cover up with, soaking wet from your own condensation because the new tarps don't breathe. So don't do what I did on the night before your invasion with the only pair of candies that you have, frog suits at that time. Yeah, had. for some reason we're dropping in a frog suit for 20 degrees. Dropping in a frog you don't want to blow up, I guess, and burn to death. And At that um, point, it might have been... If you got a little fire on me, I might have been a little bit happy. <laughs> I know, it is really cold. And so, uh, yeah, a, a wild time. Yeah. A wild time for sure. So now it's go time. Now it's the actual day. I'm soaking wet because I'm sitting in my own breath because I decided to cover up with a tarp because I didn't have anything else to cover up with. And I'm like, all right, I'm just covered with my tarp. No big deal. Wouldn't take we get up and, and then we have to manage through the day because the invasion is going to go at night, something like two in the morning. Yep. And so we, you know, <clears throat> we get through our day doing some training, doing some talking, some TDGs, you know, run tactical decision games with the team leaders. They actually um, did a pretty good job at the chow hall that day too, if I remember right. 
Like they let us get after it in the chow hall. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. We had the well yeah. That was a good chow hall. Yeah. Good chow hall. Something we didn't bring up was uh, our warning order as a platoon, and I think it's probably important to go back to that. Um, because we got a pretty in your face oh, warning yeah. order. I mean, we got a nice five paragraph order, which is good. And, and it told us everything we needed. We had our commander's intent. We had our schemes of maneuver, concept operations, and state, right? We got everything we needed. And as soon as the order concluded, you know, and everybody was locked into, locked in. Uh, I mean, some kind of zone we were locked into. And uh, an E-man hit us with the, with the talk. Yeah. You know, it was like he gave us the warning order. He gave us the, he gave us the order. We understood what was going on. He spot checked, and then it was like he turned the recording off, even though there wasn't nobody listening, wasn't nobody else in the tent. And he proceeded to give us a talk that um, started out with "fuck these motherfuckers," yep. and um, became known forever in the second platoon as the as the, the "fuck these motherfuckers" speech. <laughs> and uh, and it wasn't the motherfuckers of Marja, and that's a, an important distinction to make. It was. If you wanted to fight the United States Marine Corps infantry, conventional or unconventional or unconventional, we're coming at you. Yep. Anyway. And bring them down. Bring the guns down. Plant your bombs. Uh, play your games. And at the end of the day, in a matter of days, we're going to own this space. And, and, we uh, did. and release some of the, hopefully, you know, with the, with the goal of re- releasing some of the oppression off the people there. And um, and so we got that speech, and it was uh, fired everybody up. Uh, we left there pumped, and then you know eventually now we lead up to Leatherneck, and it's you know one in the morning, and we're making our way to a tarmac. You know, and, um, average age twenty two. Average age twenty two. I mean, LT was what 20, 24? He's same age as me. Yeah. yeah. That's still crazy to me. And then you know that we got our platoon sergeant, staff sergeant, staff sergeant right was. Just a bit older than us, you know. Uh, that's not right. Might have been about twenty-nine. Yeah, thirty. Yeah, I mean, not much older. I mean, you know, and those are two, two, three of the oldest guys in the platoon. Everybody else ranges from well, eight, we eighteen had, to twenty-two, we eighteen had to Pop twenty-five. Right. Well, I'm just saying, out of forty guys, when your average age is twenty-two, you get you, know, I, you see the picture. Right. You know, these are a bunch of bunch of young guys for sure. You know, and. uh and here we are, and we're standing in the middle of the night. Everybody's got their nods up on their heads. Everybody's loaded down. And, I mean, the packs were heavy. Like I said, we were carrying everything from every piece of ammo for every gun that we had, every machine gun. And, you know, the 11s were spread loading that weight because we had to take so much. Could not happen. Yeah, I mean, I remember the day that they came out and gave us our loadouts for squad. It was like two pallets full of rockets and APOMs and yep. And and small arms, machine gun. I mean, we had everything. Flare. I mean, smoke. Everything. Every squad, uh, squad internal weapon that there is, we had it. You could pretty, you could probably pretty much go through the Marine Corps uh, armaments like manual, and it would have been just check the boxes. Just check the boxes as you go through the big like outline boxes yeah. of weapons, not even the individual ones. Just if it's, I can't if it's think organic of to a squad. Yeah, I can't think of one that's to to a squad that you wouldn't. That we didn't have. I mean, we had AT4s, LOLs, Claymores, Frags, and flashes, that, like Those are the big three, right? Trip there, flares. Man. Trip flares. You know, I never carried a trip flare in Iraq. I had C4. Um, yep, C4. Satchels. We had the um, we had the quarter ounce stick, the uh, door poppers. Yep. Quarter ounce, or not, I'm sorry, quarter pound of uh, 
I think it was a quarter pound of TNT. And then it had like a blasting cap prepped in it. Yep. And um, the gold poppers hanging off the fronts of our chest was not. I, I had, we had smoke grenades, smoke grenades, everything. phosphorus grenades. Everything. Right, yeah. Ma- yeah, yeah. Incendiary grenades. We yeah. were melting engine guess, blocks with. I, I say, it, we, there was not, not, there's nothing in the Marine Corps armaments that we didn't carry. One of us at least had something. Or multiple. Or multiple. Yeah. yeah, I had multiple phosphorus rounds for the mortars. I know that. Yeah, and then combat lifesaver bags. I think got issued out too. Yeah, yeah, extra tourniquets on everybody. Actually, if you look at some of the pictures, uh, you can see two tourniquets on my shoulders, and then I've got two more on my sides. Yeah, and you carried the CLS anyway, so yeah. you had a pack full of them there. And so, um, just a note on these pictures: if you guys want to follow some of these, we're going to be adding pictures to the social media pages. Um, we'll talk more about that at the end, but some of them are from, uh, the New York times. And I know some of them are just from what we took, right. the very limited ones we took, but right. So, all right. So, uh, there, there we are. We're on the, we're on the tarmac and, um, and it's about to go down as they say, you know, and, and obviously everybody's got nerves, everybody's got emotions, but I would say for the most part, I mean, at that point, I feel like everybody was pumped. I feel like everybody was locked on. We all knew the mission. Every man knew their part and two above them. And <clears throat> we got on those shoppers knowing that we were ready. Yep. And as weird as that sounds, I took over in September of the squad. And going into Marja in January, I mean, I knew the names. I got. I knew enough to operate and we were ready. Yep. Uh, everybody was confident. And so... Then we load the birds, right? And like, I don't know what you remember about loading the birds or what it felt like to you, but it felt like we were, it felt like, it, it felt like forever before we actually lifted, lifted us forever. Right. Okay. I, yeah. So <laughs> I feel like we sat there for about four hours and I was on the floor with someone in between my legs. And you were in between somebody else's legs. And I was in between somebody else's legs, which I don't even know how you fit between someone else's legs with the side of the pack that we were carrying. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But that's, I was wondering if you wanted to cut it off for this one and go into the uh, social media and we can pick the story up on the other side on the next episode. Yeah. All right. So if anybody would like to follow us on Facebook, it's at Choices. Not Chances Podcast. Um, we will be developing a YouTube day, uh, YouTube channel, so you can follow us there. It'll be somewhere along the lines of Choices Not Chances. Um, we'll be developing an Instagram page and a Twitter. And this podcast will be wherever you can find your podcast. We're not going to try and uh, we're going to try and get on as many platforms as we can. That way, we don't put anybody out. So, with that. Ryan has a special announcement. We're going to come out the gate kind of hot on uh, on another topic. All right, guys. Uh, last announcement. Like you said, Facebook, uh, go in the search bar, type in Choices Not Chances podcast, and boom, it's going to pull up. And it's going to be in, in you know, these first couple episodes, we're going to start adding some pictures, adding pictures of the studio, adding pictures of um, Times in Marja, and we are going to cover more of the book in, in the next few episodes. Um Big announcement is that we're going to launch our first annual writing competition. 
And this is just something to stir, uh, stir thoughts, get people going through the process and putting their thoughts down on paper. I think it's good for multiple reasons. I think it's good for um, clarity of mind. I think it's good for being a therapeutic process. It's very therapeutic for me to write my book and uh, not only write it, but, you know, it brought me back in contact with a lot of my guys like, hey, you know, you remember this, you remember that, you know, what do you have to add? Checking for accuracy. And so it brought guys back together, which was awesome. And um, and I, I just believe in it. I, I've been writing, you know, my thoughts down through counseling and, and through the book for, for several years. And I think it's good. I think it's good for the mind. It's good engagement. And um, it's, a, it's a good way to get out of your own way, get out of your own head. And so the competition rules are going to be on our Facebook page. You can visit uh, the Choices Not Chances Facebook handle and get everything you need as far as what we're looking for. Um, how we're going to, how we're going to decide winners. Um, and then ultimately the, we've decided that the first place winner of the writing competition is going to have the opportunity if they choose to come and, and run an episode over, over, um, you know, their writing, whatever it was that they wrote about. And this writing is going to be combat geared, combat geared completely. And there'll be more details as, as the time gets closer, but we're going to start it with episode one. So today's June 1st and the competition winner will be announced um, by June 1st. It's an annual thing. So we'll accept submissions for about six months. That'll be in the rules on Facebook. And then after that, that gives us time to do what we have to do to, you know, kind of weed it out and, um, get down to the cream of the crop and then we'll pick a winner. We'll announce to them that they won and then we'll go live, live on a, on an episode with them. So mm-hmm. I think it's going to be good guys. And, and no writing is bad writing. Send, send us, you know, send us all your, all your thoughts on this, put the effort in, put the time in and send it to us. And um, I think it's going to be good for everybody. And we're not just going to read one, but we are, are only going to air one. And so there's that. Uh, um, I do want to say, because we hadn't said it yet, uh, we will be dropping on Tuesdays um, with our schedule right now. We're going to be trying to, uh, we're going to try for once a week, but we may only be able to do every other week. So you're just going to have to bear with us in the beginning. The logistical yeah, issues. But we're going to figure it out. Um, Tuesdays. Oops. Yeah, so Tuesdays is when we're going to drop. And um, and the last thing, let me get your book real quick. One more time for those of you who didn't see it. I'm going to go ahead and show it again. My book this is my, this is my new book, Lions of Marja. Uh, just published April 21st, so we're about a month in, give or take a day or a couple hours. And, um, and yeah, so it's available on Amazon right now. You go to Amazon, type into the search bar, uh, Lions of Marja. And it'll pop up and, and populate. It was $16.99 right now on Amazon for the paperback copy. And <clears throat> I think it's $3.99 for the Kindle version. So, you, so I have a Kindle uh, version also available if you're a Kindle reader. And so you can get those now. And I appreciate your support. And I think you'll like the ride. I mean, we're going to continue to talk about the book for the next, you know, three episodes. Uh, we're going to have a couple different perspectives. Um, we, we're going to have my perspective as a squad leader and, and then Matt's perspective as, you know, the APL 
you know, my right hand, but you're also going to have the perspective of a first time deploying guy named Michael Grimes, who um, had to step in and fill some big boots just prior to the push um, and had to take that team leader role and, and really shined, uh, really shined in that role. Yeah. And and served as multiple roles in the squad, so that's going to be a good that's going to be a good episode, and we're really going to touch on different perspectives of of the squad uh, throughout throughout different different sections of the book, let's say. Um, so definitely added material. If you've already read the book, then uh, you're going to get extra material that's not in it. If you haven't read the book, you're not going to get all the book material. So you better go out and get that too, and you have it all. So um, um also. As far as the book goes and finding it on Amazon, if you have any trouble spelling Marja, because there are multiple different ways to spell it, um, you can look up Ryan Rogers. His, if you type in his name in the search bar, the book will come up. I tried it multiple times. Boom. Boom. All right, guys, we appreciate it. And again, we appreciate all your support. Um, all the vets out there, bear with, uh, bear with us on the book. We're going to do the review over the next two, three episodes, and then I'm going to get you guys some content. Um, our first interview content's now been secured and that's going to be Dr. Michael Blair. And he is former grunt Marine, um, banged up over in Iraq, came home, um, became an orthopedics doctor and specializes in prosthetics. And it's the kind of prosthetics that tap into the brainstem and these guys can literally think about turning their hand. And I've seen the videos and it's amazing technology. Great for anybody that has buddies with prosthetics, family members with prosthetics. You have a prosthetic yourself. You are going to want to tune in to the episode with Dr. Mike Blair. Dr. Mike Blair. All right, guys, I appreciate your time. We're glad that you came and hang out with us. Gave us a little bit of your time and and uh, we hope you soak some in. We hope you enjoyed the, the book review so far and... Um, and the podcast to come guys, we're going to do nothing but go up. So, uh, hit that subscribe button, smash some likes for us, join our social media pages for all the pictures, updates on the writing competition and events in the upcoming future. And, uh, we'll see you guys on Tuesday. Have a good one. Thanks. How are we doing everybody? This is the co-host of choices, not chances podcast, Matthew Charette. As mentioned in the beginning of the show, this episode of the podcast is sponsored by Louisiana Gun Shop. The folks at Louisiana Gun Shop have been a longtime supplier of firearms and shooting supplies and services, as well as very good friends of mine. One day, we will get the owner and founder, Harlan Boblet, on the show. At Louisiana Gun Shop, the sky's the limit when it comes to getting the firearms and accessories you want for your current or future firearms. They have a nice selection of handguns, rifles, and shotguns in stock, or can order just about any firearm you could want or need. They specialize in concealed carry handguns and custom AR-15 builds. In addition to firearms, they also carry ammo, suppressors, optics, and a wide variety of gun parts for the upgrade and maintenance of your firearms. If you want to get further into the upgrade side of things, they provide customization services such as Cerakote, laser engraving, and Kydex holsters. So like I stated before, Louisiana Gun Shop is located on Highway 90 West in Broussard, Louisiana, just south of Lafayette. It used to be Louisiana Gun Shop did not have an online presence. 
but now I am happy to announce that their website is up and ready for business for online sales to all 50 states at louisianagunshop.com. Louisiana Gun Shop also offers Louisiana residents concealed carry classes for a very reasonable price. Harlan's experience in the concealed carry space when it comes to the laws and the do's and the don'ts is pivotal in attaining your Louisiana concealed carry license. As well as the firearm market, Harlan also conducts explosive training for Louisiana blasters licenses for oil field and special effects workers in Louisiana. Workers in these fields from out of state will also need to have their training in this field to complete their work in Louisiana. So whether you need a firearm, upgrade your old firearm, targets and ammo for a range day, or you just like to talk to people who support the Second Amendment, Louisiana Gun Shop is your place, either in person or online. Remember, they are located on Highway 90 West in Broussard, Louisiana, just south of Lafayette, or online at louisianagunshop.com. You can also follow them on Instagram and Facebook at Louisiana Gun Shop. A special thanks to Harlan and Jenny at Louisiana Gun Shop for sponsoring the show. Please support them so they can support us and keep the podcast free for all. Thanks. Have a great day. Semper Fi and God bless America. Not too far. You're marking the building. Hit him. Yeah, that's good. That's a good shot. That's a funny. Yeah. Yeah.